Well, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel. We are um, approaching the very end of this particular Gospel that we spent some considerable time looking at, and it's been a great privilege to be in this account. If you know anything about the, uh, the Bible, you'll know that there are four um, stories of the life of Jesus. And Mark wrote one of these down, and we are nearing the end. We're nearing the crucifixion when Christ is, is put to death on the cross, and, of course, then the resurrection that follows. And so we're here in the 15th chapter, on the night that he's been betrayed, on the night that he stood trial before the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. And then this is the next episode that took place on that very night. It says this, And as soon as it was morning, <clears throat> the chief priests held a, con- a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or whipped Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, it's very important, it's of inestimable importance, I should say, really, that we understand and appreciate the weightiness of this moment. And let me just give you a little bit of um, context into which I say that. It's my conviction that every worldview around us and on offer in the world, and in many ways our lives are constantly bombarded by competing ideologies and worldviews and visions of the good life, all of them offer for us a portrayal of a kind of salvation, a heaven uh, to attain on the one hand, a hell to avoid, and a way to get to where you want to be. And it's true, most obviously, when you consider all the world religions, that all of them have some version of a heaven, some version of a hell, and some way, some path, some kind of um, method by which you can get where you need to be. But it's not just true when we're thinking of religion. It's also true when we consider um, the secular ideologies and worldviews that are constantly on offer before before us in life. And I think, for example, one of the most prominent ones is the, the, uh, the ideology of consumption. The idea that heaven is possessing more stuff and better stuff. And so from the moment you open your screens in the morning till you go to sleep at night having watched TV or whatever you've done, you've been been bombarded with messaging on these lines that heaven is having more things and hell is not having the right things and the way to get to heaven is through consumption. It's the same in other aspects of life also. You think about... All the kind of dominant messaging we have today around health and good looks and how heaven is to be 
in peak physical condition of youthfulness and, and, and svelte and strong and fit and good looking and hell is the very opposite of those things and here's how you attain heaven. And it's true also when we think about the scientific worldview that we are immersed in these days and I know it's taken a bit of a battering this year but even now you know, real faith, true believers are still putting their faith in science to get us out of um, this mess we're in. And we see salvation as progress, technology and all these things. Hell as going back into the dark ages and the barbarism of the lack of these things. And so we have a heaven, a hell and a way through. Now, I say all that because I think everything, every story, every worldview that people offer us these days ultimately boils down to these fundamental elements of a heaven and a hell and a salvation path. And Christianity is no different, of course. And this then raises the question then, well, what is so unique about the Christian faith? If we are, if we are among a market of ideas, what is so unique about Christianity that causes it to stand out and be most prominent among these various things that are on offer for us today. And I think there are many ways in which we can answer that question. But I think one of the most important ways you can answer this question is actually by considering this fact that Christianity doesn't just offer you a salvation, and it certainly does, but it also offers you a savior. And this is really the heart of the Christian message, that the focal point of the Christian faith is not so much on the salvation that's being offered as it is rather upon the savior himself and the way in which he gives it to you. So that whereas in all other worldviews, the focal point falls on you. What are you meant to do? How can you attain the thing which is an offer for you? Within the Christian faith, the focus falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a very weird and unusual and bizarre thing when you think about it within the context of everything else that we hear in life. That so much is depending upon just one person. And not just on that one person, but also on a few moments within the history of the world, and that these moments are the very moments that we're reading about here in these Gospels. So that when I put it to you like that and say that, listen, the heart of the Christian faith is Jesus, and the heart of what Jesus did for us is in these particular moments in this Gospel, and that if you don't get this, you don't get it at all, and if you do get this, then your heart will begin to be flooded with the life and salvation that God offers. When I put it to you like that, you begin to see just how important these stories are in the things that they reveal to us, and the things they show to us, and the things that we come to understand through them. Now that said, <clears throat> one of the challenges, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, someone who considers themselves a Christian or a non-Christian, one of the great challenges is how are we to fully grasp and understand exactly what's going on here? And I mean that in the fullest sense possible. I think that it's possible to have a very superficial understanding of things in life and then to have a full understanding of things. And you think this is true in day-to-day -day knowledge. How do you come to know a person? You can know things about a person. You can read someone's bio on a website or on the back of a book or whatever, but you don't really know them, not truly and not fully, until you experience and encounter them. And that knowledge is more than just an intellectual grasp of who they are, but it's something that touches you on multiple levels of your being including your emotions, it touches your soul, all these kinds of things. This is what real knowledge is, isn't it? Knowledge is a, a comprehensive thing that grasps the fullness of something. And the same is true when we think about the gospel, when we think about the Christian message. How are we meant to fully know this? And one of the answers that I, I, would, I would say to you is that I don't think we actually can. I think that because to, to fully grasp this would mean that it penetrates you at every level, not just of your understanding, but of your emotions and your comprehension to really see yourself 
truly in, in the way God sees you and to really see what Christ accomplished for you. And it seems to me that in some ways this is almost impossible for us to attain because we're dull creatures. And I speak of myself as much as to you. We're dull creatures with limited understanding, a limited ability to grasp things. We're also plagued by doubt. We read these accounts and we recognize that it requires a measure of faith to believe in what is happening here and that it was done for me and for you. That we're also troubled by the fact that this happened 2,000 years ago. And just to layer on top of all those natural challenges, we're also constantly distracted in this day and age so that our hearts struggle to maintain anything like a real meditation and comprehension and understanding of the depth and the sweetness and the beauty of what's happening here in these moments. So this is why I think that part of the Christian life is actually the pursuit of this knowledge. It's the constant, daily, persevering desire to not only understand but to fully grasp the reality of the gospel and of what Christ accomplished for us. And it is my conviction also that part of the enjoyment of eternal life with God in heaven will be the unfolding of greater depths and understanding of these very things. That you don't get it all the moment you become a Christian, but that it unfolds to you like a flower unfolds, petal by petal, moment by moment, facet by facet, you understand in greater depth and significance the reality of this. So I'd say on the one hand, I don't think you can fully understand the gravity of these particular moments. But that said... I also believe that one of the things that we, we see about God in the scriptures is that he, he wants to put across the deepest realities of the universe in simple ways that we can get a handle upon. John Calvin used to speak about this in this way. He said that God is so beyond our understanding. He's infinite, of course, and therefore our finite minds can't truly grasp, can't fully grasp knowledge of him. But God condescends to us in revealing himself in his word. And he, he likened it to this. He said, God, it's like when you speak to a child and you raise your voice and maybe you babble or you speak in baby talk. Or he said, lisp. You lisp to a child so that they understand you. He said, this is how God speaks to us. Even though these truths are too big and too weighty and too mighty and too, too great for us to understand. But God reduces them down like you talking to a baby. He reduces them down into ways that you can grasp. And one of the ways in which he does that for us in this particular story is through the very simple reality we see of what I want to put to you is this doctrine that we call substitution. And here we see it through the lens of this man Barabbas, the account of what happened to Barabbas and what happened to Jesus and how they seem to swap places at this trial of Jesus Christ. Jesus has said a little bit earlier in the gospel that the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was saying that his life would be a purchase price to pay for a people, to pay for your life at the cost of his own blood, that it would be like springing you out of prison or out of slavery, that he, his, his blood would be the manumission, freedom price that's pray, paid for you. And this is something that we're seeing vividly put before us in the providence of God at the trial of Jesus when we see Jesus put alongside this man Barabbas and their two destinies crossing in this, in this, this moment where one heads the one way and the other heads the other way. And I want to unfold this to you a little bit more and help you to see something 
of the profoundness of this moment. One of the first ways in which we see this idea of substitution is this fact. And the fact that Jesus is bound so that you can go free. He's bound and constricted and his freedom is taken away so that you can go free. Now, to understand this, we have to begin by asking the question, what is your natural condition without Jesus? And one of the the answers the Bible gives you is that you were born into slavery. That you were born into a state of captivity and slavery. If we think about slave trades as they've taken place through history, one of the most heinous aspects of slavery is, of course, the fact that a child can be born to a slave woman and find, find him or herself in a condition of slavery from the moment of birth all the way to death and never taste freedom, never experience even a, a moment of freedom for the entirety of their life. And Jesus diagnoses the human condition in, in exactly that way. He says in John chapter 8, the, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. He's saying that in God's house there is no place for slaves, only sons. And he, speaking of himself as the son, is the only free man who's ever lived. That's what he was saying. You're all slaves because you practice sin. Now, I know that when this idea is put across Immediately in our hearts, there's a, there's a momentary objection to this because if we start to describe our situation as being one of slavery, I think you immediately recoil from that because you, you recognize that you feel free. You say, I, I, don't, I don't feel like a, a slave. From the moment I woke up, I did the things I chose to do. I'm free. But I think this is to misunderstand what the Bible speaking of when it speaks about captivity or slavery as the natural human condition. And we must understand it in this way, that it's not really speaking about service to an external power or force. There are such things, but it's not speaking about slavery to an overlord or a master or a despot who's in control over you. When the Bible speaks about slavery, rather what it's speaking of is an internal reality, a slavery even within yourself to your own lusts and desires and longings and passions. And this is how it's put to us. For example, in Titus 3, Paul puts it like this. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And what he's doing for us is he's describing to us what it's like to go through life without the saving power of Jesus at work in you. He says you are a slave to various passions and pleasures, by which he means... The lusts that control us, that kind of exercise a dominating influence on us so that we are actually doing things we don't want to do or we're pursuing, we're unable to extricate ourselves from our own desires. And obviously this is a massive theme within all religions that there is this idea that you have desires that are like raging fires within you, uncontrollable desires. And that part of what it means to live a good life is to somehow seek mastery over them rather than mastering you. But the Bible says that is not possible. You're a slave to these things. They own you. They control you. Now, I think to understand this, these days we use the language of addiction, don't we? And it has a, a kind of a double meaning that on the one hand, addiction speaks of a physiological dependence. And so that if someone is subject to the power of certain substances or chemicals, be they medicine or something illicit, for a sustained amount of time, your body can become so dependent on something that to take it away um, 
it leads to very dire effects within the body and even death on some occasions. But also we, we, we use this language of addiction now, not just to speak about physiological dependence, but also psychological dependence. There's a sense in which the mind can become bound to behaviors and traits and patterns of living and desires. And we, we use the language of addiction. that we, all, we use it quite freely these days because it's an acknowledgement that there are all kinds of ways, even to very sort of, you know, very superficial and unimportant things, all the way through to very life-controlling, dominating, destructive things. There are all kinds of things in life to which we experience what we describe as a kind of addiction. And the Bible is pushing in that direction. It may not be the exact same use, but it's speaking of something like that when it says that you are slaves to various passions and pleasures. And so this is why in this account, this particular story, it's so important that we see what's taking place here. I'm putting to you that Christ is our substitute, that he therefore has to enter into the worst aspects of our condition in order to spring us free from those things. And this is what we see going on for Jesus, in that he's bound. It says in the first verse, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Jesus, the son, the only free man who's ever lived on the face of planet Earth, he is the one who is now has his freedoms and his liberties taken away from him. He is bound. And the very opposite thing is what is happening to Barabbas. In the last verse of what we read, it says, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas. And I'm trying to put, suggest to you that these realities are more than just historical side notes, but that they're full of spiritual significance because what is being put before us is a visual image of the very thing that Christ has accomplished for the person who believes in him. He was bound so that you could be sprung free. And this is exactly what the Bible says about the condition that you're in when you come to believe in Jesus. That though you were born a slave to various passions and pleasures, Jesus says, I came to offer you freedom. And this is how he put it in that same chapter I was reading from in John chapter 8. He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How does the Son set you free? By entering into the condition of captivity himself when he went to us, to, into this trial and to the cross. If the sun sets you free, you should be free indeed. And that this ought to be the natural experience of the person who's come to believe in Jesus. That you were bound, you were controlled by lusts and desires, you were a captive to them, but then God begins to release you from them in a miraculous and supernatural way so that you are no longer a slave to your, to your own sin. This is how it's put in Galatians chapter 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, this is Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, which is to rescue or to release or to free those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he's saying your status changes. You were a slave and you were captive to sin and to the law, which told you what sin is. And he says, then you became a redeemed person. You became a son. You became a child of God. And he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I want you to see that this is precisely what we're seeing in this story of what happened to Jesus on this particular day. He entered into the captivity of these moments of being a slave, and we are released from that captivity just as Barabbas was released. This is how salvation works, a substitution. One swapped for the other. I think we can also, uh, let me just read to you a couple of lines, by the way, from a, a hymn. 
by Charles Wesley, who expressed this in kind of immortal lines that are so famous to Christians. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is the experience of what it means to become a Christian. You go from being like Barabbas, shackled and chained, in a prison cell, in a dungeon, to walking free. And all because Christ was bound for you. This is one thing. Let me show you another thing. We also see that Jesus stands trial so that you can escape judgment. And this is the second way in which we see this substitution taking place. He enters into the experience of standing in the dock, of being accused and of being judged while you get to walk away. Now let's approach this in this way. When you consider the events of what took place on this particular occasion, how Jesus is <clears throat> first put on trial by the Jewish authorities, then handed to the Roman governor Pilate so that he could be accused and ultimately condemned. What is striking about this court proceeding? And the answer is, of course, that it is the most unjust, the most unjust um, trial that's ever taken place in, in human history. And I think this becomes obvious when you, you ask, well, who is the guilty person or who are the guilty parties here? And the answer, quite simply, is absolutely everybody except Jesus. Everybody is guilty. Everyone around him is guilty except for Jesus himself. And you can list the guilty parties here. We see the priests guilty. In their, though they're meant to be the guardians of purity and religion and devotion to God, here they are conspiring, lying, and, and so evident is the wickedness of their heart that even the Roman governor Pilate can see it when he says that he perceived that it was out of envy that they'd handed Jesus over. That He sees their sin, it's just so obviously there. And not just the priest, you also see it in Pilate, this governor. Pilate is not a good man by any historical reckoning. He's a, a typically corrupt Roman governor. But you can see something of this corruption and wickedness coming out in this story. In the fact that here he is, he's supposed to be a just and impartial judge. And what does he do? He chooses the path of expediency, placating the crowds. He really gives way to man-pleasing when it says that they had demanded that they crucify Jesus. And it simply says, so wish, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released Barabbas and had Jesus scourged and delivered to be crucified. And it seems to me that what we're seeing here are the patterns so obviously there within all tyrants that on the one hand they want to exert their power and dominance in a way that's brutal and wicked. On the other hand, they're also people pleasers. They want adoration. They want adulation. And this is Pilate also. He wants to, to please the crowd. And so he does what they want. And tries, on another gospel, we're told he washes his hands to say he's not guilty of the death of Jesus. It's your fault. But of course he is guilty because he's the one in charge. And then you see the crowd themselves whipped up into this religious frenzy and fervor. It seems that I think perhaps it's because it's the Passover, a time when they were so reminded of their identity as Jewish people that they are in this kind of heightened state of, of fervor and, and of, um, of kind of mob thinking so that they cry out, crucify him. Cruci they keep repeating it, crucify him. And it's shocking on the surface, of, but of course I, I actually think this is just precisely the same kind of human nature we see on revealed to us today. We're all capable of this. 
you know, there's so many innumerable occasions in recent years when we've seen the mob crying out for people to be crucified who've transgressed our ideas of morality in some way and who are no longer worthy of anything like mercy, but rather we extricate them, we cancel them, we cut them out, we crucify them. And so you see all of this wickedness, all of this human sin, all of this guilt surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in that that he emerges as this perfect, spotless, blameless, pure man. And there is something very striking about his purity, I think, in this, that even in his silence we're told that Pilate was amazed. I think that it was as though Pilate observed Jesus and the dignity of his wordless defense, and the something of Christ's purity just emanates from his being in an overwhelming sense that Pilate is taken aback by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an experience that anyone who's ever encountered Jesus in any way, in any personal way, will be aware of what this feels like, to be amazed by him. Of course, that amazement doesn't always lead to repentance. It doesn't always lead to believing in him, and it didn't for Pilate. But for anyone who has come to believe in Jesus, you've encountered him much as Pilate did on this day. And you've seen his beauty, his purity, his matchless, spotless splendor. And here's what I'm saying to you, friends. Everybody around Jesus is guilty. And yet he is the one who stands trial and is condemned. And the Christian reads this. And the question you ought to be asking yourself is, well, where am I in this and what should my response be? And I believe that the response, the only response that we can have when we read a story like this is one of total humility. Because if you ask yourself, where are you? You cannot honestly say, I'm with Jesus in the place of innocence. You have to say, I'm with all the guilty people around Christ. And not just with you know, the priests and Pilate and the crowd. You're with Barabbas himself. The Christian is someone who looks at Barabbas And even though we recognize he's a bad man by any measure, guilty of insurrection, guilty of murder, and guilty of robbery, you were told in one of the other Gospels, even though he has a very condemning rap sheet against him, the Christian is someone who says, that is me. The teaching of Jesus has revealed that that these kinds of sins lurk in the heart long before they take action. And if you've been angry against a brother, you've committed murder. If you've lusted, you've committed adultery. You know, all these things are true of us. And so we identify most readily with this most wicked man, the man Barabbas. I think that Mel Gibson came close to expressing this well when he made his film, The Passion of the Christ. It's a film that brutally and accurately portrays the grim physical reality of crucifixion, something that the Gospels actually tell us very little about, but which the early Christians would have known from personal witnessing and experience in their day-to-day lives. And in that film, a film I've only been able to see just once because I couldn't bring myself ever to watch it again, but there is a very, um, a very sort of uh, pregnant moment in that film where you see the hands of a Roman soldier nailing the great iron nails through the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mel Gibson um, told people that... It, In that particular scene, as the director of the film, he used his own hands as the Romans' hands, the one nailing the the nails into Jesus, because he wanted to put across this idea, I nailed him to the cross. 
And I think he, very cl- he came very close to, to portraying a truth there. And I think he could have gone one step further, one step towards more accuracy, which is that he could have put himself in the place of Barabbas in that film. And that that's when you get closest to understanding your position as a Christian in this particular scene. You are Barabbas. And this is why the Christian has to be so thankful. Because we know that just as there is a court scene here, a trial taking place here, this is precisely what the scriptures say awaits every one of us on the final day when we meet God face to face. And the scriptures teach us and show us that it is because Christ has stood trial on this particular occasion, on these very historical moments that he stood trial and was condemned. It's because of this that you and I can no longer be accused and we can no longer be condemned. This is put across in very beautiful language in the book of Revelation, where it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, which is a way of describing Satan, his name means accuser, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus' blood, by the word of their testimony, the gospel that we believe, for they love not their lives even unto death. It's as though our great enemy Satan only has one weapon. It's the weapon of accusations, the weapon of holding up the list of your transgressions and sins before God and saying, look what they have done. Look at what they thought and felt and desired. Look at the actions that they've taken in life. Look how unworthy they are of your presence. But just as a bee can only sting once and then it kills itself in the action, so also Satan, the accuser, could only sting once and he exhausted his accusations upon the Lord Jesus Christ when Christ stood accused and Barabbas was sprung free from prison. And I want to suggest, friends, that this is us. Not only was Christ bound so that you could go free, he was then accused so that you could never be accused. There was no double jeopardy. You could never experience that crime being leveled against you twice because it was all leveled against Jesus instead of you, and you walk free. Let me show you one final way in which this comes to something of a climax and a conclusion in which we see this substitution becoming complete in this story. And it's this. That the Lord Jesus suffers condemnation and punishment so that you could escape these dreadful experiences. Now look at it through the lens of this man Barabbas, who I'm suggesting to us is me and is you. What did he deserve on this day? And I think this is a difficult thing for us to appreciate as 21st century people because our notions of justice have been softened so significantly since this first century. We now, you know, we now think of criminals um, receiving sentences that include things like community service or kind of um, apprenticeship rehabilitation schemes or at worst a spell in prison with Sky Television. But of course Barabbas was put into a dungeon and he was very much on death row. He was awaiting capital punishment. It's, it is even possible, and I don't think that this is going too far to suggest, but it is even possible that his day was this day. He was meant to be on the very cross that Jesus ended up on. Now, this is the thing that I think we find difficult to accept concerning ourselves. Are we Barabbas? Are we 
worthy of this punishment, this death, this capital punishment. Because we imagine that our wrongs are not so bad as his. And we, we kind of have ways of evading the judgment. And, and Paul talks about this in Romans 2. He says that our consciences, the inner voice that tells you whether you're doing right or wrong, they accuse or even excuse you. So there are moments when you feel guilty, but then quickly your conscience moves in. And also then your inner, your inner lawyer, your inner advocate finds ways like psychological defense mechanisms of, of relieving you of that guilt, of mitigating it, of blaming others, of presenting all kinds of mitigating circumstances that led you to think the things you thought or to do the things you did. And so our consciences excuse us. And so we imagine that we're in some kind of a different category from Barabbas. This is definitely a bad man. But you and I, you know, we're, we're only in a middling way bad because, you know, maybe we thought bad things from time to time, but we're not as bad as him. That's what we tend to imagine. But the scriptures are so vivid and so clear and so, so explicit on this fact. Here's how it's put in Romans chapter 5. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, death was the consequence of sin, so death spread to all men, to all of us, you and me included. Why? Because all sinned. It's enough, the scriptures are telling us, that you have sinned even once, and that is enough that you are worthy of the same kind of capital punishment that Barabbas was to receive on this very day. I think this is a difficult thing to fully grasp because of our sense of justice, our sense of holiness is diminished, our sense of the righteousness of God has largely, um, has largely vanished and that we, are, we tend to be people who, who, who self-justify. But Jonathan Edwards explained it in this way. If you, ask, you object and say, well, how can my wrongs be worthy of death, eternal death? And he said, it's like this. You haven't just sinned against any ordinary person. You sin, sinned against an infinite God. So even your smallest wrongdoing has infinite consequences. He uses this language. He says it's infinitely heinous. It has infinite demerit. In other words, it can stand against you in an infinite way. And is justly, infinitely hateful to him, that is to God. This is the diagnosis that the scriptures give to us. That even the smallest things that we have done stand against us as of infinite uh, guilt and demerit. And yet, this is what we're seeing happen in this story. Barabbas, who represents you, who represents me, he walks free. He doesn't have to serve a kind of reduced sentence. There's no parole. There's no conditions of parole. There's no community service. There's no rehabilitation scheme. He just literally walks away without a criminal record. He is totally and absolutely free while Christ himself suffers. So it says, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. Friends, in such a beautiful and yet tragic, powerful, simple, yet profound way, we can begin to grasp something of the meaning of what took place on this day. The Lord Jesus Christ and this man Barabbas swapped places 
And so this is what Christ has accomplished for me and for you. This is how the Christian salvation works. Jesus steps into your place as the guilty party and you are sprung free to walk free, uncondemned, not just now, but into, fu- into the future and into eternity so that you can stand before God with great confidence and know that there are no accusations that can be leveled against you. I want to leave you with one final question as I close. If what Christ has given to you is life, and this is what Barabbas received on that day, isn't it? He had a death sentence hanging over him, and life began again for him when he was released from that prison, when he stepped out into the open air. If what you have received is life, you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you going to do with it? There's a very tragic moment in um, this, the film The Shawshank Redemption when one of the aging prisoners who spent nearly all of his life in prison is finally released in old age. And walking out of the prison, one of the first things he does when he stays in his temporary accommodation is he slings a rope over a beam and hangs himself because he has no idea what to do with his freedom. He's so institutionalized by his experience of being in prison. And I think that part of the great challenge of the Christian life is understanding the implications of your freedom. What must it have felt like on that day when Barabbas walked into the sunshine without shackles, without the Roman soldiers eyeing him and pursuing him, without any charge standing against him, totally free? What would he have wanted to do with his second chance at life? How must he have felt seeing Jesus hang on the cross that he was supposed to be on? In a sense, you can begin to imagine this is the position of the Christian. This is the question that lies before you. Christ has made you free. What are we to do with that freedom? What do we owe to him? And how are we now to live for him? Why don't we bow our heads and pray? Father, we thank you that in in your own mind, before the creation of the world, the full depth and breadth and profound reality of this gospel was fully formed. And here we are, dull, small, finite, weak, often stupid creatures with only limited grasp, only limited understanding on these realities. There's none of us who's fully grasped your holiness. There's none of us who's fully grasped our sin and unworthiness before you. There's none of us, therefore, who's fully appreciated what it is that Christ did when he took our place on this particular occasion. But we thank you that despite all of that, you nevertheless have put before us such a simple picture Christ instead of Barabbas, Christ instead of me, Christ instead of each one of us. Where we are conscious, Lord, that we've been cherishing sin in our hearts, I pray help us to walk away from it. Help us to walk in the good of what Christ accomplished for us, the freedom that is now ours in Christ, the sonship that is now ours in Christ. We want to enjoy you from this day on 
our precious Savior. Amen.